Aging Matters on WERA is brought to you in part by Synergy Home Care. Synergy Home Care provides premier in-home care for you or your loved one throughout Northern Virginia, including personal care, homemaker services, companion and memory care, and transportation. Call 703-558-3435 or visit SynergyHomeCare.com for more information. Synergy Home Care will find a care solution to meet your needs. Good afternoon and welcome to Aging Matters on Arlington Independent Media's community radio station, WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. I'm Cheryl Beversdorf, your host. No matter how healthy individuals are, as they age, their joints will show some changes in mobility. Older adults often believe they'll have to live with joint pain as a normal part of aging. In truth, there's a wealth of treatment options for joint pain, including exercise, medications, and joint replacement surgery. Today, my guest is Dr. Kenneth Vaz, hip and knee replacement surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. Dr. Vaz will talk about joint conditions in older adults, including causes, risk factors, symptoms, diagnosis, and treatments. He will also discuss joint replacement surgery and what patients need to know when considering having the procedure done for them. So welcome, Dr. Vaz, and thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Okay. Well, we need to do a little bit of a basic anatomy and physiology uh, lesson before we get into the specifics. So explain for us, Dr. Vaz, what are joints in the body and what is the role of these joints? Yeah, that's a great question to start. So joints in the body are anywhere where two bones meet. And uh, while we typically think of the classic sort of joints that can move, there are many places in our body where two bones are meeting that be classified as a joint. So classically, the hip, the knee, elbow, those are the things that we think about. But we also have joints in other places, for example, where your ribs meet your sternum or even in your skull. But the ones that we think about, and especially that I treat, uh, typically are the ones that move and allow us to accommodate our day-to-day tasks and activities. And you were mentioning about movable joints. As I understand it, there, there are four types of movable joints? Yeah, so that's a way we can classify joints. Uh, so they're, the ones that we think about are a hinge, a ball and socket, a saddle, or a condyloid joint. Um, But in actuality, our joints are all very complex and usually involve some combination of those movements. Um, So one of the classic examples we talk about is the elbow, where there's actually both a hinge and a ball and socket within one joint. Um, But there are other ones that are more straightforward. The hip, for example, is probably the closest we have to a true ball and socket. Okay. And so the movable joints are really what you in your specialty really uh, focus on, correct? Yeah, because those are the ones that are probably the most implicated in how we get around and how we live our day-to-day life. Okay. So then help us. We're Obviously, this is aging matters. So what are the common types of joint conditions that affect these movable joints? 
Yeah, so the most common one that we see is probably what we call osteoarthritis. This is the one that most people would say is a kind of wear and tear or degenerative type of arthritis. Um, it's the one that tends to affect the most people, um, which is why we talk about it the most often. But there are other types too. Um, the autoimmune and rheumatologic ones, which are where there's some aspect of the body that's unfortunately attacking its own tissue. Um, some people can have an infection, which can lead to arthritis. Um, and in some cases, traumatic injury to a joint itself can lead to joint problems as well. So tell us a little bit more about that. Obviously, these various conditions affect different older adults and men, women, maybe different races. So help us understand the, the causes and the risk factors that may cause these various uh, joint conditions. And, and is it mostly older adults, regardless of race or gender or nationality? Give us kind of an overview of how, what you see. Yeah, there's definitely uh, multiple factors that are involved in people having joint problems. Um, it's certainly a combination and not just one thing in most cases. So genetic issues certainly are implicated as there are plenty of people who note that they'll have family members that have also had arthritis. Sometimes it's just the way that we're born or the way our bones form when we're born and our bony morphology that can lend itself to having an arthritic problem. Um, Trauma or injury to a previous joint can also do it if that was in the patient's past. Um, but even some things like body weight have been implicated in people having arthritis, as we know that obese patients are more likely to have arthritis than people who are at normal weight. Uh, nutrition has been seen, and even the activity levels that patients undergo have all been implicated in arthritis. I think a lot of the reason that we tend to see these conditions in older patients is because a lot of those issues become more additive as we move on through life, um, along with the fact that in some ways the body's tissues may, may not be quite as resilient as they were when we were younger and have the ability to heal and repair better than we do as we get older too. And I was curious, I asked about older adults and are certain of these conditions, again, more prevalent in women, more than men? Uh, culturally, do you see them more in one race, more than another? In this area, of course, we have so many different cultures. Um, I want to make sure that people are aware of what they can maybe expect as they get older. Yeah, so we do see a slight predominance for having arthritis in women, which again, we can't entirely explain, but probably does have something to do with both a genetic along with a hormonal issue potentially. Um, and there has been some evidence that uh, in African-American patients, we can see a little bit of a higher predominance of arthritis as well. Um, but to be honest, those are relatively minor and it tends to affect kind of most elderly patients kind of more uniformly than, um, than, you know, we, we probably think in terms of these are all minor sort of variations, um, but it can certainly affect any patient and any patient who's having joint pain. Um, it's certainly reasonable to, to work it up or explore it further in terms of what might be their causes. And, you know, I asked, and, and you mentioned already about older adults, when does it vary in terms of age? I mean, older adults can be anywhere from 50 to 100. So, when do you begin to see that uh, some symptoms of these joint conditions begin to show up? Yeah, that's a great question. So I 
I have, and again, it, a lot of this is multifactorial and depends sort of on the patient themselves. And, and I think things like bony morphology and genetics tend to play a much bigger issue in our younger patients. So when I'm seeing patients that are at 30, 40, 50 years old who are having significant joint problems, those tend to be implicated. Whereas people who are having osteoarthritis more generally, I tend to see after about 50 or 60 years of age, typically. And so that's a good segue into the symptoms. What what are the most common physical symptoms of the uh, joint conditions? And do these vary with the, the different conditions that you've described? Oh, absolutely. Um, so I guess classically, the two that we see the most commonly would be pain around the affected joint and then stiffness around the affected joint. And typically those occur with activity or movement or being active. Um, but sometimes the, the timing of the symptoms can implicate the cause of it. Uh, for example, we're always taught in medical school that people who tend to have more morning stiffness tends to be associated with rheumatologic issues, uh, but that's not always the case. Um, and also in some cases, it may not even be the affected joint, which is painful for some patients. So it's not uncommon for me to see someone who's coming in complaining of some knee pain. We get x-rays of their knee and they're doing well. And it's actually that they've got severe hip arthritis. Um, but again, usually it's associated with activity. Usually it's associated with some form of stiffness or difficulty with mobilizing. Um, other sorts of things that we can see in patients who are having joint issues can be swelling around the joint. Some patients will have difficulty sleeping or night pain or discomfort. Um, and then some people will have more fatigue or difficulty when they're trying to walk further over longer distances. And that also, I suspect it's not just physical, but maybe there are mental and emotional symptoms related to these joint problems. Do, do you see that too? Oh, absolutely. I think we're really just starting to understand that there is a strong emotional component to how we all experience our joint pain and that Sometimes for some patients that can unfortunately form a little bit of a vicious cycle um, where it becomes harder to mobilize, people become a little bit more uh, dejected or down because they're not able to do it or feel limited in some way, um, which then leads to them having even more difficulty with coping with their joint problems. Um, even after total joint replacement, this is becoming more of a, an issue that we're seeing and we're identifying that there are some sort of aspects of being uh, depressed that can even lead to complications such as infection or even compromising how well your immune system responds. So there are very real implications to sort of the emotional response and how patients do either coping with their joint pain or, you know, responding to how they recover from an operation, even if it's a joint replacement or something else that probably would really benefit from being addressed if a patient's struggling as well. I was curious, Dr. Vaz, obviously there's so much, you know, social isolation right now. Um, do you think that, that that condition can exacerbate the, the situation for people with joint conditions? Oh, absolutely. I'm seeing people fairly regularly when they're coming into the office nowadays and, you know, they're having a lot of difficulty coping with the fact that one, they can't be as active as they'd normally like to be because of the the isolation, social distancing requirements, um, which make it even harder for patients to sort of be able to be as active as they'd like with or without joint problems. And that, of course, can lead into other issues, including 
like we talked about, the isolation from uh, that can be associated with depression or um, even just things as simple as gaining weight, which I've seen more and more of over the last few months, for sure. And I and I would suspect, too, because they're more socially isolated and the family can't see them. The family can't even help them to maybe come to see people like you to get diagnosed. Is that also a, an issue? Um, it can be. And I guess the one issue is even though we have telehealth um, and video conferencing, that sometimes it's hard for patients to even participate in that. I mean, I have a patient who is 91 the other day and came in to see me because she doesn't own a computer. She only has a wired cell phone landline. Um, and so even from that perspective, even though we've had a lot of great advancements more recently in terms of trying to keep people connected, they certainly can be harder for some of my older patients to participate in. With all of these factors that we've talked about, how is a, a diagnosis of a joint condition determined and what what kinds of diagnostic tests do you use? Yeah, so I think a lot of this goes back to the patient's history and what they're experiencing. Um, so collecting enough information to see sort of what type of pain a patient's having when they're having it will sort of point you in the right direction in terms of the diagnosis. Um, after that, in the vast majority of cases for my patients, just a plain film x-ray uh, can can pretty much give me the rest of the story after I've talked to the patient. Um, there is a role in some cases for advanced sort of imaging like an MRI or blood work, um, but I don't typically order MRIs for my patients for a few reasons. Um, one is that there are a lot of things that you can see on an MRI, um, incidental findings that can either cause a little bit of concern for patients or don't really have much of a clinical consequence because, again, a lot of them are the result of having arthritis. So the most common thing we see from that perspective is meniscal tears. Um, they're very, very common on patients even after they turn 30 or 40. And there's been multiple studies that have shown even in patients without knee pain that many of them will have things like meniscal tears. Um, so from that perspective, I don't really think it usually helps me. And the other part of it is there are a lot of things that you can see on an MRI that typically would respond to standard management. Um, and so in that case, sometimes getting an MRI can hold up a patient from getting um, some of the treatments that may just help them ahead of time already. Um, so I don't typically do MRIs in a lot of patients, even though that's a common question I get asked once I get an x-ray. Um, and in some cases, blood work may be helpful for patients, especially if you're looking at sort of autoimmune or rheumatologic reasons for having pain. But again, a lot of that is still based off of the patient's history. And you mentioned meniscus. I'm just to make sure that people understand that's in the knee, correct? Correct. Yeah. <laughs> Since I, I know a little bit about anatomy and physiology with my nursing background, but when I hear those, I always want to be sure we're at the right part of the body. So. Yep. Yep. Let's also talk about the type of uh, healthcare providers that diagnose and treat joint problems. Obviously, you are a hip and knee replacement surgeon. Um, explain so we understand if we're having the kind of symptoms that we've been talking about, who they should go, who a patient should go see first. And explain a little bit about the function of each of these specialists that you're going to tell us about. Yeah. So I think in a lot of cases, a lot of the early treatment can be actually done by a primary care provider. 
Um, and in a lot of cases, I have patients that come to me that already have a diagnosis because their primary care provider did a great job of figuring out what the problem was. Um, the nice thing from that perspective is a lot of patients who know their primary care provider well um, and already have an established relationship with them can get worked up fairly expediently and fairly easily um, because some of the specialists can be fairly busy. And a lot of the workup can be done with straightforward sort of, again, history exam taking along with uh, just an x-ray, which a lot of providers have available to them immediately in their office. Um, even then, a lot of the initial care can also be performed by a primary care doctor, um, including medication management. Some will even do injections as well. Um, but when the primary care provider is starting to get to the end of what they can provide, um, then it certainly can to come to me as an orthopedic surgeon. Um, there are also rheumatologists who can uh, provide care both for patients with osteoarthritis along with rheumatologic conditions in many cases, um, or in some cases, depending on what the patient is limited in, um, a physical medicine and rehabilitation specialist can certainly assist in terms of assisting with how the patient's walking along with, again, similar sort of treatment options to myself. Um, so again, I think the, the first person that a patient should be having contact with when they're having sort of joint issues that have been occurring over sort of a short period of time or weren't a result of some immediate trauma um, can probably have a lot of this taken care of through their primary care provider. And it can make for a very sort of productive conversation too once they have to go to see a specialist um, in terms of being able to provide them with more sort of advanced options to take care of their joint problems. Thank you for that that excellent description of the various healthcare providers. So then what are the factors then that determine the treatment uh, for these joint problems? And does it vary then with whoever the healthcare provider is that is kind of making the initial diagnosis? How, how does that work? Yeah. So I think for me, the most important aspect of determining a treatment for a patient is really the patient themselves. Um, everyone experiences their joint pain differently. It affects them on a day-to-day -day basis in different ways. And so from that perspective, it's really the patient that has to tell me sort of what they've tried, what works well, what doesn't work for them um, to determine what might be the best options to help them moving forward. Because a lot of it is seeing how a patient is tolerating their current therapy um, and taking the next step in treatment in some cases may be a reasonable option. And for other patients, it may not necessarily give them what they need or what they're looking for to help take care of them further. So let's start out with the more conservative. And you had mentioned that sometimes the primary care uh, provider can uh, take action for, for somebody. So does that usually include something like physical activity and, and exercise? Is that something that, that you recommend also? And, and maybe even talk about physical therapy. Help us on this more basic conservative approach. Yeah, so I always recommend that my patients with arthritis continue to stay as active as their joint pain allows them. Um, movement is essential for maintaining a healthy joint or maintaining whatever health a joint does still have. Um, and so from that perspective, I think it's really important for patients to know that being active, while it sometimes may cause them some discomfort, um, isn't necessarily a bad thing for their joint and is probably a good thing. And to be honest, for a lot of patients, there's a bit of a gray area in terms of 
sort of where not moving it can cause them more pain, discomfort, or moving it too much can. And so a lot of it is, again, individualized to the patient in terms of one, finding out what activity works best for them and that they can maintain and stay active with, and two, how much of it they can do before it causes them to have enough, enough discomfort that it limits them. But from, again, from that perspective, I don't limit patients in terms of what activities they want to do, because I think that's not only important for the joint itself, but just for their general health, general well-being to stay active too. Um, and in that same kind of vein, if patients are looking for activities to stay sort of motivated or moving with, I do tend to recommend lower impact activities for patients. Um, that would include things like walking, hiking, uh, cycling, using an elliptical machine, um, a rowing machine, pool exercises if they can get into a pool at this point. Um, but even then I don't discourage a patient if they like to run and that's something that they need to do to keep themselves happy and centered from doing that, because that's ultimately the most important thing. And that's the reason that they're coming in to see us is to see what they can do to either stay at the level of activity that they'd like to, or, or at least not make things any worse from that perspective. Um, and I think physical therapy goes into that same vein in that, Basically, we're looking at ways to help a patient continue to stay at an activity level they like. And if that includes strengthening the muscles around a joint to help it accommodate sort of their day-to-day -day activity better um, to keep things moving, then physical therapy can certainly be a helpful adjunct from that perspective. Uh, that being said, if physical therapy in some cases can cause patients a lot more discomfort, I don't, I don't have patients continue it because I don't necessarily think it's an absolute requirement in order to have a, a good outcome, at least prior to any consideration for joint replacement surgery. I guess the most important thing is, is when you do recommend physical activity and exercises that they continue to do that. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that the, that when patients have arthritis, a lot of them are worried that because this is sort of a condition that doesn't necessarily have a cure um, that that means that they have to stop doing the things they want to do because they're going to make things worse. When actually I find that a lot of cases it's the opposite. And so my most active patients, even with arthritis tend to function well. And if they ever come to the point where they need a joint replacement also tend to come out better on the other side of it too. Another thing that you hear a lot about are injections. And I'm really eager to hear what you have to say about when uh, injections are the best treatment? Is there a limit to how often they should get them? Tell us about injections and is the treatment. Yeah, so there's a lot of options for injections out there. And I think the one thing to highlight first with the injections is I, at least with our current research, they all seem to work the same or in a similar kind of manner. Um, and that could either be in a steroid injection, which we t commonly talk about, um, gel injections, or uh, the term would be high algan injections, or some of the more kind of specialized, which maybe are a little still experimental in terms of stem cell or PRP injections, that all of these really in the most recent sort of research shown to just decrease inflammation within a joint and hopefully ease pain from that perspective. None of them have really been ever shown to regrow cartilage or change that course in terms of arthritis for people. 
But for me, injections really are the last line of treatment prior to a consideration for an operation because it is an invasive procedure compared to any of the other sort of more conservative measures we try. Um, there has been some research that shows that at least in the setting of a steroid injection, that there may be a concern that it causes people to have uh, more advanced or accelerated arthritis. But to be honest, I'm not really entirely sure to what to make of that, because I think in most cases, if someone can get good pain relief and get back to what they want to do with an injection, then that's certainly far more preferable than an operation. Um, where I think some of that, that research has shown helpful is in patients that have severe arthritis, um, where I don't think an injection may offer them much help, that it's certainly reasonable to move forward with surgery for them. But to be honest, that's very, very few of my patients. And um, I think in all cases, I would never dissuade a patient from having an injection if it's something that they want to try. Um, I do try to limit the injections for patients, though, to no more than two to four times a year. Um, and I feel like Part of that is because if a patient is requiring an injection so often um, that they may need to look at other avenues to help with their joint pain. Um, and then there's the other sort of patients who I have who really save their injections for times when they want to be more active or want to have an important time in their life. Say there's a major family event around the holidays or they're going on vacation and all the rest of the time they're able to cope kind of with the standard conservative measures. So that's another sort of indication or time where I consider injections for patients. Um, and then the, finally, the other rare time is in patients who really are unfortunately not surgical candidates, either because they just have too many medical issues that it doesn't sort of justify the risks of undergoing a major operation. And do you find that patients who get these injections get have side effects often? Is that a part of getting the injection? So in the very few cases do I see that a patient has a side effect, um, they are certainly more pronounced in certain patients. And the one area that we've seen, at least from our academy, is that the gel injections sometimes can cause significant joint swelling or pain, which may make it difficult on a patient. Um, and that also can happen to a lesser extent with a steroid injection. But to be honest, in most cases, they're very well tolerated and tend to have very minimal risks. Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break right now for an important message, but I want our listeners to know we are talking with Dr. Kenneth Vaz, hip and knee replacement surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. And you're listening to WERALP Arlington 96.7 FM. We'll be right back. Aging Matters is brought to you in part by Kathy Corridan, Senior Real Estate Specialist. Kathy is a realtor with KW Metro Center in Alexandria and works with seniors in Alexandria, Arlington, and D.C. to make selling their home and moving less stressful and more successful. More information is available at 703-971-7237 or ccatkw at gmail.com. Welcome back. We are talking with Dr. Kenneth Foz, hip and knee replacement surgeon at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. 
And we were talking about various types of treatments. And I, Dr. Foss, I wanted to ask you about one more treatment of choice before we get into joint replacement uh, surgery. That has to do with medications. So when are medications the treatment of choice? And then tell us about the types of medications that you often prescribe. Yeah, so I kind of view the medications similarly to injections in that um, I find that they're hopefully not a, a regular permanent solution in the sense that there's something that someone's needing regularly. Um, so for patients who find that they're taking the occasional anti-inflammatory when they're having a painful day or two, or even for a couple weeks at a time, I think that's a great way to manage their symptoms. Um, I get a little bit more concerned when I find that patients are sort of taking anti-inflammatories continuously. That means for months at a time, um, or even Tylenol, which again is a little bit different and I'll get into that in just a minute. But um, I think when people are getting into that sort of situation that they do have to think a little bit more seriously about whether there's a better way to manage their pain um, and whether that is moving forward with a joint replacement or at the very least, um, they should be monitored in those situations by their primary care doctor because these medications aren't necessarily without their own side effects as well. And from that perspective, again, I'm more of referring to kind of your standard osteoarthritis patient. There are certainly patients who have rheumatologic conditions who should be and typically are managed by a rheumatologist um, with more sort of advanced medications. But again, that's a little bit more specific. Um, but when I'm talking about anti-inflammatory medications, the ones that I typically refer to are things like ibuprofen, naproxen, meloxicam, um, which can either, depending on sort of the dosage, be bought over the counter um, or can be a prescription medication. And some of that, again, some of them work differently. So while ibuprofen may work well for one person, naproxen may work well for another, or the dosing regimens may work well for other people. But outside of those, Tylenol is another option and can be taken with one of those anti-inflammatories because it does work a little bit differently. So even though a patient may not have a great experience when they're taking one by themselves, I do sometimes suggest that if they're having a time where they're especially painful, that taking them both in conjunction with each other may work well for them. Um, but again, if it's something that they're going to do on a regular basis, it does need to be followed by a primary care doctor or someone who can monitor them regularly. Um, in the case of opioid medications, that's the only sort of medication I, I strongly recommend against. And the only patients that, again, I really would consider that as an option for pain control um, are patients who are not or are never going to be a surgical candidate. Um, because then again, it's more of a sort of palliative measure for those, those, those patients. Um, because we know that opioids don't do much to actually change the natural course or have any impact on the pathology involved in, uh, in arthritis. Um, and they tend to make patients more tolerant. They have addictive potential. They do have a lot of side effects in and of themselves as well. And for the patients that do eventually undergo surgery, one, it makes their pain very difficult to control after surgery because they've become tolerant of our standard pain medications. And again, for reasons we don't understand still, they do have an increased risk of complications, including infection after surgery. 
So that leads us to the area that is really your specialty. So explain to us what is joint replacement surgery and which joints can be replaced, but how do you make that decision? We just talked about other types of treatments and preferred, and what leads you then to say, okay, I think you're a good candidate for joint replacement surgery. What, what is your thinking as you, you move up to this? Yeah, so joint replacement surgery uh, is a procedure where the damaged bone and cartilage around a joint is then removed. Um, and the remaining bone surface that's left is covered or implanted with some sort of prosthetic material. Um, usually that's some combination of metal and plastic that then allow the joint to move again. Um, while the two most common joints that are replaced and the two that I take care of are hips and knees, um, they're actually joint replacements for many joints in the body that have had varying success. Um, so other places that there are joint replacements are the shoulder, uh, the ankle, the elbow. Um, there's even been joint replacements for the wrist and for the small joints in the hands and feet. And so what... What makes you then decide, um, you know, is it the condition? Is it the patient? Is it the circumstances? What, what are all of the factors that you take into age? Uh, you mentioned that a little bit ago as to how you make this decision. Yeah, so I think, again, it goes back to a lot of what to do with the patient. Um, and so even though osteoarthritis, which is now the most common reason for a joint replacement surgery, um, it was actually originally intended for patients with rheumatoid arthritis, um, but we have lots of other conditions that we do joint replacements for. One would be avascular necrosis, where the bone underlying the cartilage that lets the joints move can sometimes be compromised and lead to arthritis. Um, and in cases where people have had a previous infection or trauma to the joint or all other reasons to undergo a joint replacement surgery. Um, I have a lot of patients though who come in and tell me that their doctor or someone or a friend told them that they need a joint replacement surgery because they have arthritis. But when you actually talk to the patients, they're functioning well, they're okay with the medications that they're taking or their means of pain control, and they're able to do their day-to-day -day activities. For those patients, you don't need to have a joint replacement. And then on the other side of things, I do have a couple of very young patients who've been told they're not a candidate for a joint replacement because they're too young to have it, even though they're at a point in their lives where they have pain, they can't function, they can't mobilize because their day-to-day -day activities are too painful for them to do. So for me, I think the best way of putting it is that a patient should be considering a joint replacement when they've tried the other non-operative means that we've talked about, therapy, changing the way they do their activities on a day-to-day -day basis, taking pain medication, um, or even injections, and they're still having pain and dysfunction in their day-to-day -day life that's limiting them from what they want to do. And then at that point, it becomes a question of what is it that they're doing in their day-to-day -day life and can a joint replacement reliably give them that level of pain relief and that level of function that they're hoping to get back? So as with any kind of surgical procedure, there are always the risks. You talked a little bit about the benefits already, but uh, what are the risks? Yeah, so unfortunately, that's the unfun part of what we have to deal with um, as well. And, you know, joint replacement, while it's a great procedure, hip, knee, and the other joints as well, um, it isn't without its risk. But it is amazing how much function a joint replacement can restore for people. 
I've had patients who are overjoyed at the fact that they can just put a shoe or a sock on again after a hip replacement. I had one patient whose knee was so stiff that they couldn't even get into a car without having to sit across the back seat because their leg was just out straight most of the time. So even for them, just being able to sit in a passenger seat of a car was something that they, you know, were getting some of their life back. But, you know, unfortunately, we do see the other side of things where there are risks and complications that come up with our surgeries. I think classically, the one that we as surgeons worry about the most is a risk of an infection. Um, and joint replacement surgery is really unlike a lot of other surgeries in that infection is probably a much more difficult problem to deal with. Um, because when we're putting in metal and plastic, um, bacteria have a certain affinity for it as opposed to your normal body tissue. In fact, we say it, that a bacteria is about 100,000 times more likely to stick to metal or plastic or some prosthetic material than your normal body tissue. And when that happens and it becomes a problem, it makes it nearly impossible to take care of an infection with just antibiotics alone. So in this group of patients, it does typically mean more operations where we have to take out some of the parts, take out all of the parts that we put in. Um, usually it means an extended course of antibiotics. Sometimes it means putting in a temporary implant that puts antibiotics within the joint until we can come back later and do a new, uh, a new joint replacement. But all in all, this, this process is very time-consuming, costly, painful, and to be honest, it's one of the most emotionally exhausting problems that a patient can deal with, which is why we do everything we can to minimize that risk, but it still happens. Do you also find that given the age of your patients that anesthesia, being under anesthesia, and you're talking about multiple procedures, can being uh, uh, you know, asleep uh, as part of the procedure, can that in itself also be a risk? Um, absolutely. The good thing from that perspective is we've really evolved a lot in terms of how we administer anesthesia for our patients. So in a lot of cases nowadays, we can do these under what would kind of classically be viewed as a spinal or epidural anesthesia where you're numbed up from the waist below, uh, but then you just get some sedation for the procedure itself. It's very safe. It's really nice for patients because they can wake up from the procedure itself without having a lot of pain and can then get their pain under control as their sort of sensation returns as that anesthesia wears off while they're clear-headed and awake and, and able to kind of cope with it a lot better. And I'm assuming that you use the same approach in terms of anesthesia each time that you would do the procedure then. Is that, is that correct? If we can, it's, it's, it's definitely a great option, but in all cases, we still do have to be prepared for patients to undergo a general anesthesia, which, to be honest, is also very safe in the vast majority of cases, too. In the event that the joints on both sides need to be replaced, do you usually perform them at the same time or one of the time? How does that work? Yeah, so I... We, it was a little bit more popular at one point to do both joints at the same time, but we've had a lot more research come out recently that's shown that there are some pretty significant risks, even though they're unlikely, they're much higher when you do both joints at one sitting in one operation. Um, the risk of having a heart attack, a stroke, a major blood clot is significantly higher when you do both of them at the same time. And that can even be higher in very healthy patients. So for me, I tend to try to keep them relatively close together, but maybe not necessarily do them in one sitting um, and really reserve that type of procedure for patients who are 
either really debilitated and can't still wouldn't be able to mobilize well with just one joint replaced, um, or in patients who are extremely healthy and want to be able to just get through one operation. Uh, but again, it's very, very rare for me to do that nowadays. I'm assuming that maybe that the time would vary as to when you did the second procedure then? Yeah. So for me, and I think what we found is that even delaying them just a few days has been shown to um, mitigate some of the risk. Um, and that even putting it off for a couple of months has been reasonable in some cases for some patients um, without strongly affecting their overall recovery from the procedure. And you've kind of mentioned already as to when joint replacement surgery would not be recommended. Did did you want to kind of just go over that again as to what would be the situation when you would not recommend joint replacement surgery? Yeah. So the, the two sort of situations kind of sit, I think, on opposite sides of the spectrum. So one is the case where I don't think a joint replacement will necessarily give back a patient what they want in terms of sort of quality of life. And so from that perspective, I've had a few patients who've come in wanting to try and get back to high level sports, basketball, or even football in one case. Um, but we're having not really any limitations in their standard day-to-day life. I think in those types of patients, um, having a joint replacement may not necessarily give them what they need. Um, the other um, situation was where patients, just the risks of undergoing a surgery are so high for them that um, that it really doesn't out, you know, the benefits aren't outweighed for those patients, um, whether that could be that they could even, you know, die in the surgery itself. But again, that's pretty rare, exceedingly rare for patients for me. You had mentioned earlier that some patients continue to be on opioid or a medication, pain medication, rather than doing the joint replacement. Is, is that correct? Did I understand yeah, that so, correctly? So if they're, if they're in a situation where they just aren't a surgical candidate, then that may be a consideration in those patients for maybe having to escalate their pain medication control. But usually that's done in conjunction with either a pain management specialist or in some cases even a palliative specialist. Um, again, because those are for truly sort of morbid patients who really can't even handle a straightforward operation. Okay. So now since people are obviously asleep or anesthetized, they don't know what happens during joint replacement surgery. So kind of talk about the procedure and specifically, how are the joint replacements attached to a patient's bones? What, what does that look like? Yeah. So uh, during a joint replacement surgery, we basically make an incision over the affected joint and expose it. Um, like I mentioned earlier, we remove the damaged bone and cartilage from the, that bony surface uh, and we either implant or cover that area with some form of uh, metal um, onto which we put two surfaces that can kind of move, move against each other. Um, the bony surfaces are usually removed with some sort of saw or a specialized instrument or a jig. Um, and it's not uncommon. I tell patients it's kind of like being in a shoe store in terms of deciding sort of what the right size for patients is. So we basically have a whole sort of range of sizes based on sort of the patient's height and weight um, that should be appropriate for the patient. And what we do is we put in some trial implants that are basically mimic the size that we think is correct. We move the joint in a way that puts it through its standard motion that the patient would expect. Um, and if we're happy with how that moves, 
then that's what we then take out and put in the new sort of real implants of that same size. Um, the way that the implants can be put into the bone, there are sort of two overarching ways that we do it. And one is to basically, it's called a press fit, where we essentially wedge the implant into place. That implant has kind of a roughened or porous surface that the bone then grows into over time. That happens over the course of about six to 12 weeks. Um, but in that initial period, it's stabilized just by being wedged in place. Um, the other means that we can fix things into the bone is with acrylic bone cement, um, which basically cures over the course of about 10 to 15 minutes after we hold the implants in the right position. Um, and in terms of which one is better or which one is worse, they basically come with their own trade-offs. And a lot of it is dependent on the surgeon's sort of preference, their training, and even their technique, um, because they've all been shown to be very durable in terms of how long they last and how well they can get fixed when they're done um, with good technique. And and so give us a little bit more information about these materials that are used. You've you've given s some examples. And what what might happen if a patient is allergic to these materials? How how do you find that out? Yeah. So we use a lot of different materials in joint replacements. They're all very good and have very good track records now in terms of what we typically use. Um, and different materials are good for different aspects of a joint replacement. Um, so a very common question I get asked is whether my joint replacement is going to be made out of titanium. And I tell patients that titanium may be used in some parts of their joint replacement because that's a good material for that aspect of it. So for example, a lot of our press fit or wedged in components are made of titanium because it's a good surface and a good material for bone to grow into. At the same time, titanium is not a great sort of material for having something move on it. And so from that perspective, it can deform or change shape, which isn't good for the longevity or the wear of an implant. So in those cases, we may use cobalt chrome, ceramic, or some form of plastic. And again, a lot of that is dependent on surgeon experience, surgeon preference, along with the patient factors that are involved in terms of the risk of having a problem with the material versus its longevity. Uh, because unfortunately, each material has its advantages and disadvantages when it comes to being used in a joint replacement. In terms of metal allergies, um, we actually find that this is an exceedingly rare problem. And certainly very experienced surgeons who've done thousands of joint replacements can think of maybe one or two patients that have had some true allergy to a metal within the, the implant. But there's really not been a great predictor in terms of which patients will have those problems and which won't. Um, because even things like allergy testing haven't been shown to have a predictive outcome in terms of which patients will react and which won't. Um, so from that perspective, I think a lot of it, more so than focusing on the material, really having it focus on what the, the surgeon uses well, is comfortable with, will usually produce the best outcome for the vast majority of patients. And if they are allergic to the materials that have been um, placed in the new hip, the, as the new hip or the new knee, does that sometimes occur then later on after the surgery? I mean, it can. Um, and in those cases, it does sometimes, again, fairly rarely mean that the patient might need another operation in order to change out some aspect of their hip or knee replacement. But again, it's, it's actually fairly rare. And most, most of the sort of 
studies or data on it or kind of show sort of one or two patients, it's not an extended sort of number from that perspective. So unfortunately, some people may just end up unlucky, but thankfully, it's a rare problem to have. Might there be other uh, possible complications? Yeah, absolutely. So aside from infection, which I think is the most common issue that we worry about, I think on the patient side of things, it's again, acknowledging what a joint replacement can do for them. I think this is especially true for knee replacements, where interestingly enough, despite having a good good x-ray with a well-aligned knee, no signs of infection and a well-moving knee, that even then, one out of five people may not necessarily be happy with a knee replacement. Um, thankfully, that sort of number is significantly rare for hips, maybe one to 10 and one to 20. Um, but again, that I think is the thing that probably I worry about that patients may develop. Outside of that, um, there are other common complications. The joint can still become stiff as a result of forming scar tissue and healing from their surgery. Um, in the case of hip replacements, some patients will either have the hip come out of the joint after we've done the joint replacement surgery. That's called a dislocation. Um, or because of the nature of how we do hip replacements, they may feel that one leg is longer than the other or different than the other. But again, most of those are fairly rare and usually get better with time for most people. So after the procedure, and, and I'm curious, obviously this is an inpatient procedure. How, how long are people usually in the hospital? So it's actually been quite variable and there's plenty of, um, centers that are now doing patients as outpatient surgeries, so doing them the same day. Um, but I think that that's sort of more on the sort of the forefront and that most patients would find that one night in the hospital to two nights after a hip replacement and two to three nights after a knee replacement is probably the typical average that we're seeing. Although with our improvements in how patients are getting up and moving, our improvements in how patients' pain is managed, that, they're, that those numbers are starting to come become shorter and shorter in terms of the length of time patients spend in the hospital. And also outside of that, there's a lot of aspects to the recovery from a joint replacement. So when I talk to patients about their time with a joint replacement, number one, the first goal is to get the patient up and moving as soon as possible. Um, and in most cases, that means they can put their full weight through the leg. Um, in some cases, including a hip replacement, they may have certain precautions or positions they can't put their leg in to keep the hip from coming out of place. Although again, those are starting to change too, as we improve our techniques with our hip replacements as well. Um, and from that point on, people go home. Most people find that they spend a few weeks at home recovering and trying to get about doing their day to day. But I find that at about three months, most patients are doing most of their day to day activities without significant difficulty maybe a little bit of discomfort requiring some sort of pain medication that's not in a narcotic or an opioid. Um, but the overall recovery from a joint replacement, whether it's a hip or a knee, um, I give patients a full year before I tell them that this is kind of where they're beginning to get to their new normal. And in some cases, we found that even with knee replacements, that patients' recovery, their knee can continue to evolve even over the course of five years out from an operation. And is there any particular care that a, a patient needs to uh, think about in terms of their joint replacement on a long-term basis? Or what do you tell your patients? Yeah. So this has been one of the harder parts in terms of joint replacements for us is to determine sort of what aspects can 
lead to a joint replacement needing to be redone early. And to be honest, we still haven't found any major sort of factors uh, from that side in terms of whether there's any specific activities. But in general, I, uh, I kind of liken it to having a tire um, and that the harder the mileage you put into a tire, the more likely it is that it's going to need to be changed. And so when it comes to joint replacements, I never have any specific restrictions for patients in terms of what they can get back to. Um, but it probably follows suit that the more high impact activity you try to do on a joint replacement, the more wear and tear it's going to put into a, a essentially a man-made object that isn't necessarily always going to be made to do that permanently. Um, but that being said, some people need to do high impact activities to keep themselves happy, centered, and, and, and that's part of the reason that they're going through the process. And if that's the case, then they just have to acknowledge that there's a possibility that they may need another sort of operation or, or another procedure down the road, if that's the case. And are there certain activities or lifestyle practices that you tell a patient, no matter what, now that you have this uh, replacement, don't do that again? I just want to <laughs> find out if there's anything that people should be aware of that they'll never be able to do again. Um, so again, I think there's sort of two sort of ways to think about that. And one is that for certain people, they may not be comfortable because of the limitations of a joint replacement being kind of a man-made object in terms of how it allows them to get back to activity. So there is that perspective. And again, I do see that more commonly with knee replacements because the knee is a very complex joint and our joint replacements may not necessarily give people the normal feel of a knee that might allow them to get back to a high level activity like playing sports. So there's that half of the equation, and then there's the other half of what's good for the joint replacement and what's not. And probably high-impact activities and contact sports are not in the benefit of the longevity of a joint replacement. So I tell patients, again, if they can avoid those types of activities, it's probably good for the overall life of their joint replacement as well. We're just about out of time, but I would, uh, and I'm sure our listeners would as well, uh, advise uh, all of us, what are the best resources for older adults and also their families or their care partners to learn about joint conditions and replacement surgery? Obviously, they're physician, and you have certainly been provided a wealth of information. But to kind of get started, are there good resources that um, people should check out? Yeah, I think that the two best resources out there in terms of going online, if you needed something, um, so our our overall academy, the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons, has an ortho-info website, which is made for patients to get basic information in terms of not just joint replacement, but a variety of conditions um, that would be treated by an orthopedic surgeon. And then more specific to joint replacement, our specialty society within um, the Orthopedic Surgery Society, that would be the American Association of Hip and Knee Surgeons, also has a really great patient-centered website um, that's focused on giving patients all of this information and, and answering a lot of the more standard questions that patients might have before moving forward with a joint replacement surgery. Okay. Do you have a website address for that, Dr. Vaz? Um, yep. So that would be aaos.org and aahks.org are the two, uh, uh, two societies. Okay. Well, I want to thank Dr. Kenneth Vaz, hip and knee replacement surgeon with MedStar Georgetown University Hospital for joining me today. 
lots of really good information. So uh, thank you, Dr. Vaz. And also, if you want to learn about Aging Matters, visit our website. That's www.agingmattersonline.com. And at this site, you'll be able to access all of the Aging Matters radio and TV show content. And you'll also at the bottom of the main page, you can uh, scroll on to the Aging Matters podcasts on Apple and Spotify. So, And also on the first page, you can subscribe to the Aging Matters monthly email newsletter. You get updates and new about new radio shows and TV episodes at the end of every month. Aging Matters is produced in association with Ink Mouth Media, and that's inkmouthmedia.com. So check that out when you have a chance. Thank you for listening to Aging Matters. I really appreciate your support of Aging Matters. And remember, age is just a number, not a label. I'll be back again with you next week. Aging Matters is sponsored in part by the Aging Life Care Association, an organization of aging life care professionals. Aging life care professionals offer guidance, advocacy, and support for older adults and their families in order to maximize quality of life. An aging life care professional can be there for your loved one when you can't be. More information about the Aging Life Care Association is available at www.midatlanticalca.org 